let us pray. Um, dear God, uh, we come here on this day to lift your name upon. Uh, yeah. Though we're in front of screens, though we're at home, um, Lord, let us hear you. Open our hearts uh, for you to do your thing. Um, and at the end of the day, Lord, um, let us do as you tell us to. Let us hear as you um, tell us your message. Um, yeah, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, praise team, interns, everyone. Uh, Congratulations, seniors, again. Um, look for the video that's coming. Uh, it's, I think it's going to be good. We had a lot of fun the last couple of days um, celebrating y'all. So, Anywho, we're into the last chapter of Ruth, and man, I've been waiting for this day because the buildup and everything, so fasten your seatbelt, if you will, because we're going to get into it, and the ride is going to be... It's going to be a ride today. But let's just jump right in, as we always done, uh, right into the text, going verse by verse. So going right into Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. If, you have, if you're joining us new today, we've been going through the book of Ruth, and each and every single chapter, we're kind of breaking it down verse by verse. I apologize for time's sake. We won't kind of give you a recap, but you can all kind of check it out um, on our videos. Uh, but anyways, let's just jump into Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Right in verse 1, uh, it says that uh, he went up to the city gates, Right? And that's where all the legal matters, that's where Boaz went down, and you know, all the legal matters are there. And then the closer kinsman that we're referring to in chapter 3, he comes by. Right? Now let's finally define what this close relative or this closer kinsman looks like. First of all, a kinsman is someone that's a part of your clan. We saw this before, that the Israelite society is divided kind of like this individual family, clan, and tribe. So he has to be a part of your clan. Right? And the Redeemer part has to do with these laws that God implemented back in the day to protect and provide for Israel in, different, uh, in difficult circumstances. And the two, uh, the most important ones dealt with land and sons, and those are the ones we're dealing with today. First, the land in Leviticus 25. Right? This law allowed for a kinsman to redeem, a.k.a. buy back property for their relatives in the case that that land was somehow lost or sold or whatever. It's just not in their possession anymore. God made this law, right, because back in the day, land was everything. People didn't have money. They owned land. And if you had owned land, then you could have animals and crops and everything. So land was everything to you. So in the case that somehow land was no longer in your possession as a family, someone from your family had the right to go and buy it back so that it always could remain in your family and clan. Most scholars believe that Omelech, back in chapter 1, when the famine hit, sold his land to somebody else. And then when the money ran out, he then probably said, okay, I got to go. And then he went to Moab. So that's the land part. Now the son and heir part, okay? In Deuteronomy 25, as we mentioned before, there was this law that if you had an older brother, right? An older brother and he was married, but somehow that older brother dies without giving his wife a son, then the younger brother had the duty in the law to impregnate his sister-in-law, right? So that indeed the older brother's name and inheritance and all that stuff could be carried on. And that law was for Family, so that indeed they would always have heirs, their names would not be lost, and so on and so forth. But in the case where there isn't a brother, which is in this case with Ruth uh, and Naomi, that right was transferred to a kinsman. But only if that kinsman wanted it, because he wasn't obligated, because he wasn't an actual brother. And of course, this is the time of the judges, and so not everyone's following laws anyway, but that was a key thing. The kinsman didn't have to, but could if he wanted to. Now, this is, how, this is, where, everywhere, uh, this is where it all applies to our story. And so if you're going back into the Ruth story with this kind of in mind, 
What we find is that Naomi, because she's a woman and therefore didn't have rights to own land or do anything with the land that used to belong to her husband, now is relying upon somebody else. And this is what Boaz realizes. Boaz realized that Naomi is a widow without a son and therefore needs a kinsman to redeem her dead husband Elimelech's land. But then in doing so and recognizing this law, he recognizes that he is not the closest kinsman, that there's someone else closer. So again, back to Ruth chapter 4, verse 1, as we jump in. Boaz, knowing this, has told Ruth that he's going to go into the town and find this person and settle all these things. So he goes to the gate where everything happens, and then behold, this closer relative just happens to be passing by. As we saw in chapter 2 with Ruth being in Boaz's field, as as uh, Boaz coming back to his own field, God is always working behind the scene, and that word behold is just so happens, not coincidentally, as we saw with God. So this man walks by, and then Boaz says to him, friend, turn aside, friend. Sit here. But that term that I highlighted for you, friend, is actually not the right translation. The the literal Hebrew is the idiom poloni almoni, which is a rhyming kind of idiom that basically means nothing. It doesn't really have a strict meaning. The English version of it would be hodgepodge, a rhyming thing that basically is meant to mean nothing. And so if you look at that word friend, it's actually probably best translated Mr. So-and-so, or as I'll refer to it, Mr. What's-His-Name. Hey, Mr. What's-Your-Name? Hey, yeah, you, come, sit down, because I got something to tell you. It's kind of like those times, uh, it's probably awkward, but you see someone and you're like, oh, I should know this person's name. But for whatever reason, for the life of you, you can't think of that person's name. So you're like, oh, what up, bro? Dude, 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 bro, just come, sit down. I got something to tell you. It's kind of like that, okay? So verse 2. Boaz, knowing that he's got something big to do, gathers the 10 elders of the city, or not the 10, gathers 10 elders of the city, excuse me, because they're needed to witness and make things official and legal about what he wants to do. Then in verse 3 or 4, Boaz begins his pitch. And I'm going to kind of uh, summarize for you. This is what he says. He says to the closer kinsman, he says, "Um, Mr. So-and-so, I'm sure you've heard, but Naomi, Elimelech's widow, you remember they left a long time ago? She's back and she needs our help. And Naomi actually is willing to let a kinsman redeem Elimelech's lost land, and you're the closest one. So I thought I'd let you know that if you want to redeem it, it's yours. But if you don't, then I will take care of it. And instantaneously, Mr. What's-His-Name says, bet, I got you, I'll redeem it. Boom, I'm done. Where do I sign? And the reason why he replies so quickly is because it's an offer and an opportunity that he can't and should not refuse. And here's why. Naomi, as you know, is an old, a.k.a. can't marry and have sons, widow with no sons. And while technically the land belongs to her as Elimelech's widow, she also technically can't do anything with it because she is a woman without a man. Which means that if this closer Mr. So-and-so kinsman were to buy it back, The only thing he would have to do is to take care of Naomi while she was alive. But then the moment she she dies, it would belong to him because she doesn't and cannot have sons. Which is to say that he can then pass it down to his son. And then that land will forever be a part of his family's inheritance. And therefore, it is a no-brainer. And he says, bet, I'll do it. Now you got to imagine Ruth and Naomi watching. Now, the text doesn't say that they are, but just imagine with me if it's a movie that they're watching and they're probably like, boys, what are you doing? 
I thought you had a plan. This is not a good plan. This is not going well. He's going to buy, which means everything is going to fall apart. But then Boaz indeed does have a plan. And then he goes, oh, what? Whoa. Oh, my bad. One more thing. I forgot. I forgot. I forgot. I almost forgot. Naomi has this Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth. You've heard of her, right? And I'm sure you know this, but if you redeem this land then you have to redeem her as well, which means, and again, I'm sure you know she's young enough to have children, which means then you, again, I'm sure you know, have to provide her an heir, which means then that land, Elimelech's land, actually doesn't become yours. It just becomes your son's or this son that you will have with Ruth. Oh, and, oh yeah, just, just, just to make sure, just in case you forgot, She's a Moabite, which means, you know, like back in the day, remember the Moabite women, they seduced Israelite men, and God got so mad, he killed 24,000 of us. Like, yeah, you'd be fathering a half Moabite son. Just, 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 I wanted to make sure that you are aware of all the stipulations. So then just as quickly, he says, nope, I can't do it. Done. I can't jeopardize my inheritance. I can't. You do it. I just, I, I, I can't. Sorry, I can't, I can't, I can't. You can imagine him kind of like back and away, be like, I can't, I can't, I can't. The audience, along with Boaz, I can imagine Boaz doing a Tiger Tiger Woods fist bump. You know, one of these. Because the stage is set. This is the moment we've been waiting for, and everything is going to come to fruition. Verse 7 and 8. The custom back in those days to finalize transactions, transactions of this kind and deals like this was for one party to remove his sandal. That's what they wore. So then this guy, the kinsman, Mr. So-and-so, removes his sandal and gives it to Boaz. And then everything becomes official. It's a wrap. Signed it up. Signed, sealed, and delivered. And the crowd goes, wow. By the way, by this time, there's probably a crowd gathered because it's a big, big deal. Ruth was a big deal in the town because, again, she's a Moabite and all these things. Then verse 9 and 10. Boaz quiets everyone down. And then he begins his second, a.k.a. victory speech. And he says basically this. Y'all are witnesses today that I have acquired the land that once belonged to Limelech, Killian, and Malin. And also y'all are witnesses that I've acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Malon's widow. To raise up the name of the dead and to make sure the name doesn't die in his homeland. Now, if you notice, this is a very interesting speech because it's very detailed and he mentions a whole bunch of names. He mentions Ruth's uh, nationality and ethnicity and all these things. He is specifically trying to get at something and we'll get to what that something is a bit more later. Keep that in mind, this speech. Then verse 11, everyone there, rejo- uh, uh, everyone there responds to us because the elders, we are witnesses. They're saying, amen, amen, hallelujah, hallelujah, we're with you. And what a moment. Ruth, the Moabitess, has finally and officially become a true Israelite. And then interestingly, the elders then take the celebration way up and they give this amazing blessing. They say, may Ruth be like Rachel and Leah, which is crazy because Rachel and Leah are the mothers of the 12 sons of Israel, aka the 12 tribes of Israel. And what they're saying is, may God be as faithful to this Ruth as they were faithful to Rachel and Leah and the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a major blessing because those are the two matriarchs of the Israelite people. And then they extend it and they say, and then you, Boaz, we haven't forgot about you. May your name become and remain great in Bethlehem. That's what all that stuff basically means. And you have to notice that the blessing of sons is for Ruth and the blessing for Boaz is about his fame and his name. 
And I remind you of that is because everyone here knew, just as Boaz reminded Mr. What's-His-Name, that if this were to go down, that the sons that Boaz and hopefully Ruth will have do not belong to Boaz, but they're Malan's sons, a.k.a. they carry on a Limelech's line, which is basically to say that Boaz is technically signing up to be lost forever because he won't have heirs to carry on his own name. Then more. They continue the blessing. And they say, may your house then be like Perez, Tamar, and Judah. Now we won't go into it here. We've heard this story a bunch of times if you've been around for a while, but it comes from Genesis 38. But it's a similar situation and they're referring to it because Tamar was a, a sonless widow whose husband died. And then she tried to have another son via um, the oldest son's uh, brother. I can't remember the name off the top. I, excuse me. And then that didn't work. And then long story short, a whole thing happens. And then because Tamar is left in this weird situation where she's without a husband and without a son, she creates a plan. She gets her father-in-law, Judah, drunk, pretends to be a prostitute, sleeps with him. Sorry for the graphic nature. And then has sons and uh, twins. And Perez is one of them. And they're saying, may you be like Tamar and Perez through Judah. And the reason why that's significant is because Tamar, though she is a Canaanite woman, a foreigner, the line of Judah, a very important line, was carried on through a foreigner. They're saying, you're Moabitess, we recognize, but may God bless you and carry on the Israelites through you. And may Elimelech's line be carried on through a foreigner. Then verse 13. Boaz marries Ruth, they conceive, and then Ruth gives birth to a son. You've probably seen this before in chapter 1. It's quick. In one verse, we have a wedding, a pregnancy, and a baby which is crazy because in chapter two, the whole chapter was about one day in the field. In chapter three, was a whole chapter about one night, a few hours. But in one verse, you have a wedding, a pregnancy, and a baby. Boom. Now, you have to notice here that it says, and Yahweh enabled Ruth to conceive. We've talked about this before. Yahweh is a behind-the-scenes God throughout this entire book, but only twice here in verse, uh, chapter one, verse six, does God act actively. As the subject of a sentence in, in chapter 1, verse 6, he visits Bethlehem to provide food and, and therefore rescue from the famine. And here he is now providing family. And again, those two were the biggest needs of the book throughout, food and family. This is the author's way of basically telling you, don't you get it twisted. God is the one that provides your needs, not anything else. God is the central figure. He provides your needs. If you think anything else is going to provide your needs, you've gotten it wrong. Only Yahweh can provide and will provide for our needs. Even now, for us, Yahweh is the only one that provides for our needs. Then verse 14 and 15, there's a party that ensues because, again, a child is born, and all the women, it's their turn to now do the speaking and to speak blessing. And they say to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who didn't leave you without a redeemer. May his name become famous in Israel. May he, uh, may he give you, restore, and bless Yahweh for your daughter-in-law because she's better than seven sons. It's a crazy blessing. But here's three crazy things that you got to notice about this blessing. First, they speak the blessing over Naomi and not Ruth. And you're like, huh? Why the grandma and not the mom? Shouldn't they be speaking to Ruth? The second thing you notice is that the Redeemer prefer, uh, is pointing to, excuse me, is pointing to, oh, no, that is right, is pointing to the son, the baby. Every pronoun points to the baby. And then third, Ruth somehow is better than seven sons, which is crazy because seven is the number of perfection. Seven sons is like literally the family jackpot. And the women go on to say Ruth is better than seven sons, which is insane. As Koreans, we kind of understand there's no way 
a daughter-in-law is ever better than seven sons. Sons are a big deal even in our culture, and you just know this is a crazy blessing. But here are the women giving this blessing over the ladies of the family. Then the final scene of the movie. Imagine it like this. It's a scene. It's a a still picture, not a whole lot going on, and the scene is fading into black, and the picture is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Is that getting close? Smaller and smaller and smaller from your perspective. And it's Naomi holding this baby on her lap. It's a really beautiful way to end this story, especially considering how we all started, right? She lost her husband and her two sons, and the story ends with her holding a brand new baby. And it's fading into black. But then in verse 17, just before the scene goes completely dark, the women suddenly give the baby a name, and it's Obed, who becomes the father of Jesse and the father of David. Yes, that David, as in King David, the baby Naomi is holding, is King David's grandfather. And you have to hear it from the original perspective, the original hearer's perspective. Because for them, their mind would have blown. Because what it means is that God, in the darkest and most corrupt time in the history of Israel, in the time of Judges, provides Israel's greatest king through Naomi and Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth is David's grandmother. What? Snuck that in there, just right at the end. And then verses 18 through 22. Just as you're digesting this information in the movie, as you're turning, I don't know if you've done this, you're, you're like, you're, the final scene comes out and you're like, oh, and then you're kind of walking down and you do the little turn to walk down the hallway as you're doing it and all of a sudden, boom, another scene appears. It's kind of like the Marvel's movies before Marvel's movies. Like that wasn't a thing. The first time that happened, like everybody was freaked out. Like there were people like out the movie theater and they saw the thing and they ran back in for trying to catch it. Now we all wait because we all know like the little sneak peek thing is coming. This is one of those. And you're surprised because it's 10 generations. I know they may just look like names on a screen to you. It's 10 generations of genealogy, which is crazy because if you remember, Ruth for 10 years couldn't have a child with Malin. 10 years of childlessness ended with 10 generations of birth and life. It's symbolism to the highest degree. And then the story ends with Jesse and to Jesse David. What? A story. What a job the author does to write the story, no? As we finish the story, other than the fact that this is a great story, the question that we have to face is what do we learn, right? What is the author trying to teach us? What is the whole takeaway of all this? And I think the thing that we're supposed to learn in this story is that this story, maybe better than any other story in all of Scripture, paints a picture of what the entire story of the Bible is all about. This little story paints a better picture than maybe any other story of what the entire biblical narrative is all about. And the thing that we find out is that the biblical narrative is about restoration, redemption, and through a redeemer. It's about restoration and redemption through a redeemer. And those are the three things we're going to look at. So let's jump right in. First thing, restoration. If you remember the way that the story began, it was tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, one right after another. And it was told so matter-of-factly in five verses, it was just like a gut punch. Again, again, death, 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 death. Famine, moving to enemy land, three funerals, Naomi losing everything. But here, all of a sudden, you see that all those things that had been lost are now restored. And as I looked, I found five major restoration themes, and I want to share them with you. And here they are. The first thing that you see is death to life. Again, the book began with three funerals, Elimelech, Malon, and Killian, and it finished with a wedding, a pregnancy, and a birth. 
For 10 years, Ruth was barren. And then there's 10 generations of her son are celebrating the finish of the book. And again, all three deaths and all the weddings and the pregnancy and the birth all told in a very matter of fact time. Boom, boom. Death to life. Restoration of the biggest kind. The second theme that we see is empty to full. The book begins with Naomi claiming that God has brought her back to Israel completely empty. In the final scene, we see Naomi with a baby in her lap. She literally went from empty-handed to her hands full. And we all know how much a handful a baby can be, empty to full. Third thing we see is judges to king. This story happens, as you know, in the time of the judges. And the last, verses of judges, the last verse of Judges tells us that this time is a time in which Israelite, Israel didn't have a king, in which when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the last verse of Ruth foreshadows to the greatest king that Israel ever known, King David. Judges to king. Chaos to order. Fourth, cursed to blessed. Naomi begins by declaring to the women in Bethlehem, remember when she gets back, she declares to them that God has afflicted her, that the Almighty has dealt bitterly with her, that Yahweh has witnessed against her so much that she says, don't call me Naomi, which is pleasant, but call me Mara, which is bitter. But in the final scene, interestingly, the women proclaim Yahweh's blessings over Naomi, and they even go as far to say that Yahweh has given Ruth to Naomi, which is better than seven sons. She lost two, but she gained something better than seven. Wow. And a redeemer. And then the last one. Unknown to never forgotten. This is the major one, I think. One that I think many miss, but one that we'll look into deeper, right? But notice, throughout the book, you saw these things, these people going from unknown to never forgotten. There's Naomi, who right after losing her sons and her husband, right, was written to be just the woman without a husband and the sons to the receiver of this blessing and redemption, if you notice at the very end of the book, Boaz and Ruth are not very mentioned, are not mentioned at all in the last few chapters. It's all about Naomi at the end. So this is to signify, indeed, she goes from being a person who lost everything and even her identity, that the author doesn't even mention her name, to then indeed being this Naomi to whom everyone speaks the blessing. There's Ruth. Remember when Ruth came to Bethlehem for the first time? The women, complete, the women of the town completely ignored her. Though she was there with Naomi, she goes, is this Naomi? And they don't even mention Ruth. But at the end, she's lauded and praised to be someone better than seven sons. Mm. Then there's Boaz, who makes sure that in redeeming the land, that he also redeems the name of Elimelech, Malan, and Kilian. He says, may their names never, ever be forgotten through their death, but raised up and remembered forevermore. He claims these names that would have been lost in history forever before turning their backs on Israel. And then he reclaims them and redeems them and makes sure that their names are forever known as this person and these people who are important. And then even Boaz, who because he won't have sons that belong to him, should have lost his name forever the elders speak and say, blessed be your name. May it be famous and remembered forever in Bethlehem. Unknown to never forgotten. Family, if there's one thing you learn is that Ruth's story and therefore our story and the biblical story is about restoration. God's story is one of sinners restored forever. It's all about restoration. Which means there's brokenness in your life. Your story is also about restoration. And the second thing, redemption. 
Throughout this book, we said that the characters reveal the characteristics about God. And here in chapter 4, we see in Boaz that God is a redeeming God and that redemption isn't easy and also isn't for everyone. I'm thankful to David Platt, who came up with this wonderful alliteration. I'm just copying it because I couldn't think of anything better. But he says, redemption requires three things, which are this. One, rights to redeem. We find out that Boaz can redeem, this kinsman can redeem, because not everyone can redeem. You have to be a kinsman. You have to be a member of the clan. And also the closest kinsman has to have the right before other kinsmen, which means if you want to redeem and you want redemption, you have to have rights to redeem. Not everyone can do it. The way I look at this is a lot of times if you want to redeem a relationship, it has to be the people that were a part of it. I always like to say, if I punch Pastor Goose in the face because I was mad at him one day, no one else can apologize and redeem that relationship except for me and Pastor Goose because it's between the two of us, right? Chris can't come in and be like, oh yeah, I forgive you. It's not his job. That's the way it works. You have to have the rights to redeem. The second thing we learn is that redeemers have to have the resources to redeem. To redeem, as I told you, is to buy back the land, which is to say... That if you wanted to buy back the land and you had the rights to buy back the land, you have to have the money and the resources to buy it back. Buying back of anything isn't free, I hope you know. And of course, land is never free. So having the rights to redeem was only useful if you had the resources to carry out the rights. Again, if we're going back to the forgiveness example between Pastor Gustav and I, if I punch him in the face, he, in order to redeem me, would have to have the emotional and the spiritual resources to be able to take on that burden. If you don't have the resources, no right. It doesn't really matter. And the third is the resolve. Redeemers must have the resolve to redeem. The reason why Boaz is the redeemer is because Mr. What's-His-Name didn't have the resolve. He had the right. He definitely had the resources, and he was down to do so, but we learned about Ruth he all of a sudden lost all the reserve, a resolve, excuse me, to do what was necessary to redeem. This, in many ways, is the most critical element of redemption because without the resolve, the right and the resources really don't matter at all. Like, think about it. Paying for the land for Mr. So-and-so wasn't a big deal in the end because he was going to inherit the land. Taking care of Naomi until she died was not that big of a sacrifice because in the end, he gets this land. It was a no-brainer for him. And indeed, immediately, he says, bet, I'll take it. But then the moment you add a widow whom you had to pregnate, to bring a son into the world, to take care of Naomi, the land, and then all, when it's all said and done, you put all that money and time and resources into this project, the moment that son grows up, that land becomes his and not yours because he's actually not really technically your son, but he's a Limelech's son, or excuse me, Malan's son. That requires resolve to the highest degree. To do what was best for your clan and your family, regardless of what it costs you, that's Hall of Fame level of resolve, if you ask me. And then for Boaz to tack on the fact that his name will be blotted out in history forever, potentially, because then he doesn't get the blessing before he decides. Remember, he decides, declares, and then he does it, and then the elders bless him. It's resolve to the highest degree. It's no wonder that Mr. What's-His-Name backed out so quickly. He realized that what he was going to get wasn't worth the risk. And there's that word risk from last week. 
And I think the point that we have to realize is that redemption is hard. It's not easy. It requires risk and resolve. Redeeming broken relationships is tough. It's not easy. Forgiveness is not easy. Don't ever let anyone tell you that forgiveness is easy. It's hard. It's hard work, but it's worth it. It requires great resources, time, space, emotional stability, and all that stuff. It's not easy. That's why last week I said all love is substitutionary sacrifice. You've never loved a broken person. It's Tim Keller's quote, right? You've never loved a hurting person without substitution and sacrifice. It's hard. Redemption requires risk and resolve because it's substitutionary sacrifice kind of love. And then let's not even begin to talk about what it takes to redeem sinners like you and me. But that leads us to the final point of today, which is to speak about Jesus, the Redeemer. We're privileged to know something that Naomi, Boaz, and Ruth would have never known, nor would they have ever dreamed about. Everyone back then was reading this, and they're thinking, oh my goodness, this is about King David, the King David, OMG, King David. But then we know that this story is actually not about King David, that the reason why Obed is called the Redeemer isn't because he's King David's grandfather, but that because Obed is the great, 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 however many greats you need, grandfather of Jesus. The King, the Redeemer, the one and only. Like, if, can you imagine if they all knew that this is where it was heading to the Messiah? Woo! Now, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. If you were with us this past Advent, you've been with us for a long time, you know where we're going. But let me just give you the highlights. In Matthew chapter 1, it's the genealogy of Jesus. And here are the highlights of what I want to show you. In verse 3, there's Judah, there's father, the Judah and Perez and Tamar. There's that story again. And then in verse 5, there's Salmon's the father of Boaz by Rahab. We forget that Rahab was Boaz's mom. I don't, I don't know if that you, you see that, but there's probably a reason why Boaz was the way that he was. But anyways, we move on. Then Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and then Obed to Jesse, and Jesse's the father of King David. We saw that in Ruth. And then it goes way over to chapter, I mean, verse 16, and it says Jacob was the father of Mary, uh, husband of Mary, who happened to be the mother of Jesus, the Messiah. The whole story of Ruth, all of it about being restoration and redemption. The whole point was to show us that the Redeemer of the whole grand story, and you and I is Jesus, the ultimate and the only Redeemer. And this has to be the way, because only Jesus can redeem us. Jesus can redeem us because he's our kinsman and therefore has the right to redeem us. Jesus in his humanity is like us in every single way, except that he is perfect and sinless, so he has the right I think we forget this, but if he doesn't, then this doesn't really work the way that we do, the way that we understand it. We always say that Jesus understands because he knows what it's like to be in our shoes. He has this right as our near kinsman to redeem us from our sin because he had the opportunity to sin. He just never did. So he knows exactly what it feels like. He knows brokenness. He knows rejection. He knows pain. He knows all these things, and therefore he has the right to redeem us. But secondly, he also has the resources because who could possibly pay the price and the debt for your sin, my sin, and the entire world's sin? 
only the perfect and spotless righteousness of God who, through the, who though he knew no sin, became sin so that he can pay for our sin. That's why he's called the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. I always tell you, I don't have the power to forgive your sin. <laughs> only God does. I don't have those resources. And then third, he's the redeemer because he has the resolve. Because the cross is the ultimate test of resolve, is it not? Jesus had to have the resolve to desire obedience to the Father more than anything else. He had to have the resolve to look to the joy that would come after enduring the cross. The joy isn't there at the beginning, it's after the cross. He had to look and have the resolve to look to that joy and know that it's coming. He had to have the resolve knowing that his Father would turn his face away and use him as a demonstration to show the world that God is not okay with sin, cannot be okay with sin, and therefore needs to take out his good and holy wrath to appease and satisfy his holy anger against sin by putting his own son on the cross to pay the final price for sin to be the propitiation of God's righteousness. I mean, just look at Philippians 2. I know it's small on the board, but let me just paraphrase it for you. Paul says about Jesus, he says, and tells us, have this attitude, this mindset, or the resolve of Jesus Christ. Have this resolve that though he is God in every way, shape, or form, though he is God and exactly like God, does not think that being God and like him is something to exploit and take advantage of, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Being made like man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, the resolve to redeem all humanity and our sin, God exalts him and bestows upon him the name that is above every name. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Are you seeing what's happening here? This story about Ruth is our story. That though we were enemies of God, as Ruth was an enemy to Israel, God provides a redeemer in Jesus, just as he provided Ruth and Boaz to Naomi. Now, don't miss this. It's interesting that in a love story movie, throughout the entire movie and story, we're never, ever actually told what Ruth looks like. She's never called beautiful or elegant or majestic. We're only told about her character and that it is excellent. I think that's purposeful because we have to recognize we, we don't even have what Ruth has got. We are not attractive in any way to God, I hope you know. We're repulsive to him in every single way. Our sin makes us that way. We are the worst of sinners, the dirtiest, the most undeserving, the most repulsive sinners. And indeed, God still loves us and redeems us. Look at the women in the story of Jesus' genealogy. They prove that God is all about redeeming wretched sinners. See, we're like Naomi because we turn our back. We sin and turn our back on God all the time. And yet God provides so many people to make our emptiness full, our bitterness into joy. Just like he did in Ruth, he's always working behind the scenes, sometimes in the foreground, but most of the time always at work behind the scene. And so we say he's sovereign. Are you learning? Are we learning? that our sin cannot stop God from bringing good, that even in the worst of times, that we ought and can trust God 
Because if God is writing our story, then whether you can see it or not, it will always end in good, in restoration, in redemption. Which means if any of you are feeling whatever sort of way about your life during this pandemic, whatever's going on, that no matter what, if God is writing your story, that your story will end good. It may not be good right now, just as it wasn't good for Ruth at times in her life and Naomi in her life, but it will indeed end well because Jesus is the redeemer of your soul. And what is it that he cannot redeem? Now you're probably thinking, this is where we end. But we can't. We ought not end here. And the reason is, is because to do so, I think it's to mislead you into thinking that this is just a romantic story that we bask in for our own enjoyment. That this is a story where we go, oh, God's grace is so good. It is. Whether we would go, oh, he's so, this story, God is so beautiful. He's so good to us. He loves us so much. Which again, he does and he is. But the point of the story isn't to warm our hearts and to make us feel good, which is oftentimes what we do here in church. Because it doesn't end there. And it cannot end there. Because the main theme of this whole book, for me at least, as I look through the entire scope of the entire book, Ruth 1 through 4, is that our God is a God who is utterly committed to pursuing all people. Again, that's great news. No matter how you feel, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, where you're going, no matter who you are, God is utterly committed to pursuing all people. He shows that through Ruth and Naomi, the worst of the worst in many ways, but he's pursuing all people. But this is where we cannot stop because if that is all true, it means that then we ought to do the same. If God is pursuing us, then his people ought to be the same way. If this story is really great, and it is, it's the greatest story ever told perhaps, then why are we not sharing it with all the people of the world? Because the only reason why grace is good is because God pursues us. If not, grace isn't good. Remember, we don't like grace. It's repulsive to us. We don't want anyone telling us that we suck. We don't want anyone telling us that we're not good enough. We don't want anyone telling us, criticizing us, telling us that we're sinful. We hate it. We absolutely hate it. We hate it when we didn't earn our right. We hate it when we didn't get what we deserve. We hate it when people think we're not less or we're not good enough. We hate it when people judge us. We hate it when they don't like us. We hate all that stuff. Grace tells us that we're not good enough for nothing and we hate it. But only because God pursues us do we have this good news. Because if he doesn't pursue us and don't get this twisted, we don't ever taste grace. Remember, Naomi would have rather sent Ruth away just like she did Orpah. Why? Because grace is hard on us. It makes it more work for us. Oh, maybe. Let's be honest. We'd rather send God away most of the times because it requires something of us, doesn't it? It's so much easier to live our selfish lives. We're just being honest. It's easy to take the goodness and the grace and the love. Oh, God loves us. Oh, he's so gracious to you. Oh, he forgives you. All that kind of stuff, the encouragement, all that stuff, and then stop there and do nothing with it. But that is actually not how this works because if you follow him, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, die to yourself, and then follow him. That part is required, but we don't like that most of the time, it seems. 
Which is then to say, and you need to hear this, and I apologize if you don't like it, but it's then to say that if we are not pursuing others, then can we call ourselves the people of God? If you're not, and if your heart doesn't burn for the poor and the alien, then can we call ourselves the people of God? If you aren't willing to take risks, as we talked about last week, then can we call ourselves people who have been pursued and redeemed and restored and renewed by God? And then also means that if we are not pursuing and doing these things, then it might have eternal consequences. Because God oftentimes works behind the scenes through his people. And if his people aren't moving, then what does that say? Who do we think the Ruth and the Boaz of the world are? They're not some superheroes. They're not some other people. Look to the person to your left and to your right. Those are the Ruth and Boaz that God wants to use He's looking right at you if you're a Christ follower. Now I'm going to finish here, and this is kind of where we bring it all together. Last week I asked you, what happens if Ruth and Boaz don't risk for the gospel and Hesed, right? I asked you that. What happens? If they don't take the risk of doing all that they're supposed to do in chapter 3, what happens? Now, maybe at this point you're like, oh my goodness, does that mean Jesus never comes? No, don't, don't go there. God would not have let Jesus' story be based upon two characters. He would have found a way. It's God. I don't think that means Jesus doesn't happen. It's just Jesus comes, and he is what he is, and he does what he does. But then what happens? Now, you may have noticed throughout the sermon that I've continually mentioned and been talking about names to hold on to namelessness, being remembered, and the names, and so on and so forth. Now, the reason why this is important is because, as you know, or you may know, that names in those days are super important. Names isn't just what someone calls you. Names is your identity, is your character, is your personality. It's your person. It's the most important thing that any one person owns for him or herself, it seems. Now, I mention this is because, I don't know, again, maybe you didn't notice it, but When Boaz meets the closer redeemer, if you read it in Hebrew, it seems that the author intentionally goes out of his way to leave the guy who could have been the redeemer, who could have been the guy who redeems all of Israel into King David and to Jesus. He renames him or he keeps him nameless. He goes out of his way to use this weird Hebrew construction to basically say, Mr. What's his name? And this guy... Though he had the opportunity, the greatest opportunity maybe of anyone in history, he will forever and ever and ever be nameless. He will never be remembered. Nobody knows his name. He's remembered as Mr. What's-His-Name that missed out on the opportunity to be the father, the great-grandfather of great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus. That's what he's known as. How would you like to be known as the guy, Mr. What's or Mrs. What's-His-Name, who missed the opportunity to become Jesus' redeemer, you know? And then to add insult to injury... 
The reason he will remain nameless forever is because he didn't have the resolve and could not risk for Hesed. You've noticed probably that in this chapter 4, there's names all over the Thames, all over the place, names that you can't pronounce half the time. All these names that are remembered Boaz goes out of his way to mention Elimelech, Malon, and Kim. They haven't been mentioned all throughout since chapter 1. In the first couple of verses, they have not been mentioned, but now they're remembered. Boaz makes sure that their names are remembered. And though Boaz thought, might have thought, that in redeeming Ruth and Naomi, he was going to risk, indeed, his name being blotted out forever, the elders declare that his name remembered in Bethlehem forever, which it is, because not only is Boaz named there in Matthew 1, don't miss this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. His seed all the way through. Now you may be saying, okay, what's the point? Well, here's the point. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus' famous sermon. We went over it in RK 1 or 2 if you were there. After talking about the disciples being people who hear his word and do them. The disciples are people who hear his word and just does them. After talking about the fact that good trees produce good fruit and bad trees produce bad fruit, they don't think about it, they just do. Which means if you're good, you do good. If you're bad, you do bad. And that only a few are going to find the narrow road that leads to life, while many find the wide road leading to death. Jesus says this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter, but he who does the will of my Father will enter. Many will say to me on that day, God, didn't I prophesy, didn't I cast out demons, and didn't I do miracles in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. He will look at you and say, wait, who are you again? Wait, whose are you again? Wait, do I know you? Wait, what's your name? How do I know you? Wait, wait, what's your name again? He'll ask. These are the questions that have been throughout Ruth the entire time. Who is Ruth? What is her name? Who are you? She comes back to, from Boaz and the name and goes, who are you? Boaz looks at her and says, who are you? Are you a Moabite? Are you Israel? Are you mine? Are you not? Do you belong or do you not? Which is to say that if Ruth and Naomi and Boaz do not risk, they, like Mr. What's-His-Name, will forever be unknown and nameless throughout the history of the world. That if, God, that if the gospel and hesed inherently require risk, and we as God's people do not risk to pursue the world as God pursued Naomi, as Jesus pursues us, then the restoration of your name, my name, and others' names is in danger of just becoming another Orpa or Mr. What's-His-Face and another away from me because I don't know who you are. I never did and never will. Get out. To put it as bluntly as possible, if we don't risk there's a possibility that many, including us, will forever be unknown because we will forever be nameless without identity, without personhood, without Jesus, without relationship, without life. So the question that I have for you as church, as RK, is what are we going to do with this story, with this truth? What are you going to do with your life? Now that you know. You have the greatest story ever told. 
You have redemption in your hands, unlike any other. Don't get it twisted. You have redemption, restoration, and life, unlike any other. What are you going to do with it? Are we going to spend it hoping for all the niceties of the world, the nice house, the nice car, all the good schools, coming to see what's in it for us? Where I might gain, calculating how much it might cost me, how difficult it will be, so on and so forth. Or will we, like Ruth and Boaz, like Jesus, risk it all, abandon everything to go and tell the world that there's redemption, restoration, and life for every single person on the face of the earth. That God desires for everyone to be known by name, to be in his family, to be welcomed as believers, baptized and known forever and ever and ever. That this is a love story from God the great to us, the nothing and the nobodies, but he desires to make us somebody. A Ruth and a Boaz the world will forever know regardless of where you came from or where you're going or what you've done or where you're going to be doing. But the part we miss is we hoard this blessing and we don't ever do nothing with it. We don't risk. We calculate. We don't abandon. We hoard. We make excuses. Oh, this person first, or this person that, yada, yada, yada. But Jesus, I went to church every Sunday. I was on the worship team. I was a pastor. I preached. I taught Bible studies. I served. I was on hop. I cleaned. I did all these things, all in your name. And he'll say, did you abandon it all? risk it all so that all the world will know that I am God because your eternity was secured so you thought did you forgive when it cost you everything did you risk your name maybe not being known forever and ever so you can do what was right in my eyes for the world for the sake of the world and if we show up empty handed and say I don't know and he'll say bye wide is the road that leads to death and destruction, and many find it. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few. I'm going to admit, our church, RK, nobody knows who we are. We're this little tiny little thing here in Houston. But will we come out of this as a church who's willing to be the Ruth and the Boazes of the world? who will redeem, as God allows us to, the world that needs it so bad, who will tell the world of the redemption that is there. I told you at the very beginning of this year that the reason why we're doing all this, I don't even remember. I said, we're going to Joshua, we're going to do this, because I felt like our church was on the verge of something. And I'm convinced that if we're going to do what we've always done, this church thing, if our goal at the end of this pandemic is to just open the doors and have us come back in here again and have the same 200 whatever people doing whatever we've always done, then we won't ever reach the promised land or what God has in store for us. Our goals, our hopes, our dreams have to be much bigger to save the world as God allows us to be the redemption, the restoration, the hands and the feet of God that go out and do these things to radically change our lives so that we will look much more like him. Because if we don't, then this really in many ways 
If we lack the resolve, though we have the rights and the resources of this church and everything that we have, if we lack the resolve, nothing will ever happen. Listen again to Philippians 2, because it's insane. Okay? And we finish here, and Hannah and John can come up. A professor of mine called this the most important command in all of Scripture, and indeed it is. And listen to this now, okay? And we finish here. I'm paraphrasing. I won't have it on the screen for you. Just listen. Paul says to the church in Philippi, he says to us, Jesus says to us, he says, have this attitude, this mind, this resolve. In you, that which was in Jesus Christ. Be like him, think like him, be and do like him. Who though he existed in the form of God, had everything, had heaven, had eternity, had perfection, did not consider that stance, that identity, that equality with Yahweh God, a thing that he should exploit, take advantage of, and use every ounce of. But he emptied himself, there's that word again, by taking on the form of slave, empty to full, being made in the image of God, in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance as a man. He then humbled himself. Remember how humility is the opposite of pride. Humility is thinking not less of yourself, but of yourself less. He had the humility to humble himself by becoming obedient to the death, even death on the cross. And for this reason, God exalted him, and get this now, and bestowed upon him the name above every name. When you're redeemed, you get a name, and you're remembered with the name, so that at the name of this Jesus, every knee will bow for those of who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Church, will we be the people who do like this? who risk everything that we have, who will be generous to where we hurt, who will give much more than we actually have, who will know that God is a God of abundance, who knows God is a God whose heart burns for the poor and then will go out, that we're not satisfied with just whatever it is that we do in here, that we will be remembered as Ruth's, as Boaz. Forever and ever. Lest we, resist, lest we risk being unknown and nameless forever. What are you going to do with this redemption, restoration, the greatest love story the world has ever known? And what is it going to take for you to actually take this and tell the world that we have the greatest gift ever known to man? May we, I pray, be the church that when we come out of this pandemic that God would have raised up a generation of Ruth and Boaz. That's my prayer for us. So I'm going to pray to finish. Pray for the offering. And then we're going to sing. And again, I've noticed this, but every single time, maybe it's a respect to me, but as soon as the sermon ends, the viewership, we track that stuff. It goes way down from whatever it is all the way down, which means you're not staying till the end. Will you worship and respond? Remember, it's not about listening to me or this sermon. It's about what you will do with what God has taught you. And it matters what we do after 
the live stream ends, after the service ends, in our days, Monday through Saturday. I'm going to pray for the offering, remind you that offering isn't a money crab. It is our response to God's faithfulness that we give it back to him, and then I'm going to invite you to stand and to worship with your heart out. We're going to sing this song called Humble King. Oh, kneel me down again. Oh, God, here at your feet. Teach me how much you love humility. Spirit, be the star that leads me to a humble heart that I see in you because you are the God of the broken, a friend of the weak. That's us. You wash the feet of the weary, embrace the ones in need. I want to be like you, Jesus, to have your heart in me because you are the humble king. Let us pray and worship. Lord God, who are we that you would restore and redeem us? Who are we that this great God beyond our imagination would become a kinsman so near to us that you would have the right, that you would be perfect and spotless to have the resources and then have the resolve to endure the cross and three days of separation from the only thing you've ever known that is your Trinitarian self to redeem us so that we can be like you and do that which you've done that we would be people that you would use for the glory of your kingdom and for the salvation of the world so that all of us would have a place with you, be known by you and be loved by you and have lived, lived a life here and live forever with you. Who are we? Help us. We know we have lots of doubts and pains and sins and hurts and brokenness that keep us from doing the things that you've shown us. But I pray that because you've shown us that indeed we would throw away all the risk. We're never, ever, we're never gonna feel all comfortable and perfectly right to be able to do this. But you would help us to just throw it all aside and say you are good. That if you are writing the end of our story, if you are writing our story, that indeed it'll always end in good because we have you forever. That because though we may die, we will never die and live forever. So help us to abandon and risk it all for you. Give us strength to overcome all of our fears and our worries, to align ourselves, to fix our eyes upon you and be exactly as you are. Would you take that which we give, our offering, our little that we have unto you? For we know you don't need it, but you will utilize it because you are a God who uses the poor, the powerless, the little, the widow, the foreigner, the no ones, and you make them the redeemers of the world. So Lord God, would you be enthroned and be worshiped May these words rise like incense. May you be delighted in them. And then use us and move us. We give you thanks and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you rise and sing as we finish worship?